Our thanks again for the voices of EU and for their wonderful leadership today. And I'm so grateful God's capturing the heart of a generation. Thank you, President Rakes and Darla, for shepherding that. And for, I believe, uh, President Taylor, former president, is here as well for her investment in this student body. And we thank God for what he's doing. And his eye is on you. His eye is on the sparrow. And he holds us in his hand. That's so appropriate for what we're going to talk about this morning. We're in our series in First Peter. We're now to the second half of chapter 3 of First Peter. Peter is calling these Christians scattered throughout all of what today is central Turkey. He's calling them exiles. They're increasingly being stereotyped and sidelined by their culture, viewed as a threat to the progress of society, which is not unfamiliar to us even now in America. And, and he's, he's saying, here's how you live like exiles. And today he's going to talk about surviving the resistance that you're going to feel as you continue to pursue Jesus and be the church of Jesus Christ as the culture becomes more hostile to what we believe. And uh, the, the title, Surviving the Resistance, really comes from the verse that introduces this next section. It's verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 3. Who is going to harm you, Peter writes, if you're eager to do good? So don't be wimping around, don't be moaning, don't be whining, don't be complaining. I know some of this is getting tougher, but in the big picture, not necessarily the short term, but in the big picture, I mean, who's going to harden me if you're eager, eager to do good? And if you, if you do what's right, you, you will win friends. But, but in the big picture, even if people turn around and persecute you because you do what's right, I mean, who in the end um, is going to harm you? You're, you're in the hands of your heavenly Father. And, and he says, now short term, verse 14, but even if you should suffer for what's right, you're blessed. And unfairness screams at us here. But he said, he said, there will be times where you will suffer for, not because you did something wrong. You probably should suffer if you did something wrong. But if you... But because you're doing what's right, uh, you're, you're going to suffer. He said, in God's sight, you're blessed. So do not fear their threats and do not be frightened. And so he brings us right to this idea of courage. He said, as you increasingly live like exiles in the society you're a part of, and you pray for that society, and you believe God to pour out his spirit upon them, the fact is that it may, you may pay a price to be a Jesus follower. But don't fear their threats, and don't be frightened. That, 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 that's how you survive. That's how you survive the resistance, by being a person, not with a martyr complex. I, I think the last thing we need to be doing as a church is developing a martyr complex as the culture becomes more hostile to us. But rather, we're people of increasing courage, because we're in his hands. And so... Now, Peter will give what I call Peter's four tips for courageous survival. Four tips. Uh, the word tips might be a little light, but he's going to just give some very practical. So I, I said, I use the word tips because here it's like Peter puts on his coaching hat cap and, 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 and like he's got the team in front of him. And he says, here's how we're going to make it through this. Here's how we're going to take on our opponents. And here's how we're going to prevail. Here's we're gonna, how we're going to have courage 
and survive and, and also thrive. So he's going to say four things to them now that'll take us through the end of the chapter. And first of all, this is baseline. He said, you're going to have to decide whose side you're on. You're going to have to decide whose side you're on. Now, I spent last Sunday night, I went to see my grandson in, in Tulsa, I mean in Dallas, not Tulsa, Dallas, and my, my son-in-law played for the Evangel football team for one year, and he's kind of a football fan, and my, my, my daughter is a nurse, she was working night shift, and the little guy was in bed, and so we sort of turned the volume down, kind of watched the Super Bowl and talked the whole time. And I said, now who's, now who are you rooting for? You know, like the Chiefs or the Eagles. And, you know, he didn't grow up in Missouri. He doesn't live in Missouri anymore. So he's not particularly a Chiefs fan. He's not particularly an Eagles fan. So he was just indifferent. He said, I don't know who I'm, I don't know whose side I'm on. And when you're indifferent, you don't have a passion for anything. But, when, but, but, but what Peter is going to say here now is that you've got to decide whose side you're really on if you're going to survive this. That's why he says right out of the gate, after don't feel their threats or don't be frightened, verse 15, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. And, and that word revere can be translated sanctified or set apart or we get our word holy from it. He said there has to be a place where you decide whose side you're on in the world and give yourself to that. He's quoting actually out of Isaiah chapter 5 verses 12 and 13 where God through Isaiah is saying to his people, you know, you don't need to be afraid of the things they're afraid of. You just need to set the Lord apart as holy in your own life. You, you just need to settle the question of who you're really living for. And there is a kind of Midwestern Bible Belt version of Christianity that goes something like this. I maybe go to church, yeah, I go to church, maybe once a month. I mean, maybe twice a month if there's not a game on. And, um, and uh, you know what, I don't do some of the things my church tells me I shouldn't do. And once in a while, I make a little charitable contribution. And uh, so I'm a Christian. And that would be cultural Christianity. And we find in, in the heart of the Bible Belt here in Springfield, we see cultural Christianity everywhere. But that is not deciding whose side you're on. That is not humbling yourself before God. That is not living in the fear of God and trembling to ever be outside of him. That is not humbling yourself and repenting of everything that's distracting you from an undivided devotion and passion for Jesus, for his love, and for serving him and obeying him with all your heart, for having a hunger for him. And, and, and Peter's saying, in your hearts, you need to revere Christ as Lord. You, you need to decide who you're really serving, whose side you're really on, and your heart needs to become hungry for him. And of course, as the worship team alluded to us this morning, we're, we're seeing this an example of this uh, at, Azusa, at, at uh, Asbury uh, University, like they saw a revival in the 1970s, in 1970, that began to, to interface with the Jesus people movement. I'm praying there's going to be, we've been praying for a long time, there'll be another 
whole movement where he's going to rescue the heart of a generation that's lonely, depressed, alienated, suicidal. And he was saying, you can be on my side and I can light your hearts with fire again. You can actually be a generation in this pagan, secular, increasingly hostile world to Christianity that is set apart in holiness unto the Lord. You made this decision. And I thank God for that. And it is the way of humility. It is, it's, it's not Bible Belt cultural Christianity. It's humbling ourselves before the Lord. It's repenting of every Jesus substitute in our lives. And it's saying, I'm hungry for you. That's our first core value. And the Asbury revival right now, it seems from a distance to me, from everything I've read of people who've attended, it just seems to be a hunger for God revival. We're just after a chapel service a week and a half ago, God just something transcendent moved into that room. God just manifested his presence and his glory and that chapel service has been going on 24 hours a day ever since. Because, because there are moments where God calls us to set, himself apart, to set ourselves apart as holy to him and to hunger for him. That's our first core values of church, to have hungry hearts for him. This is where he starts. If you're gonna live with courage as an exile, if you're going to survive the resistance, um, you got to decide whose side you're on and become desperately hungry for Jesus. Jesus, make us desperately hungry for you again. Rescue our old hearts that drift and grow cold too easy. And then he says, then he's going to say to them, you next need to know what you believe. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, it's more than going to church and being entertained. I mean, you got to do your homework. And I've often said to you as a pastor, I cannot do your spiritual growing for you. You know, I can't love your wife as Christ loves the church for you. I can't be hungry for God for you. I, I, I can't reach out to your neighbor for you. And we come to be inspired. We come to be his sanctuary, filled with his presence. But you need, you need to dig. You need to figure some of this out then. When you decide to set Jesus apart and set yourself apart, exclusively to him and live in a hunger for him and a humility and live in the fear of God, then, then you've got to figure out, like, what is it, I believe, so that I could explain it to other people? So that's where he goes next. In fact, he finishes verse 15. The first part, in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, then the second part of that verse. And always prepared, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So you've maybe had, if you walk with the Lord for a while, you maybe had people say, you know, like, what's different about you? I actually had a stewardess sit down beside me years ago on an airplane and say, could you tell me how to get saved? <laughs> that doesn't happen real often, especially anymore. That was like 30 years ago. But sometimes people will, will just, they can kind of smell the fragrance of Christ in you. And all your other fellow Christian friends, they get used to that smell. But you, you look different to people who aren't used to the fragrance of Christ. And they'll say to you, like, what is it about you that's different? Or how come you, you always seem to stay so calm or you have hope? And, and he said, you need to be ready. You need to know what you believe and why. Because you need to be able to answer the question and, and that question may initially, I, I see three levels here, it may initially boil down to you having thought through a three-minute version of your personal testimony. And your personal testimony, 
This is more than just an elevator speech. Your personal testimony has to do with before, then, and after. It's what my life was like before I met Christ. Then, when I did meet Christ, and after, what my life has been, how my life has changed since I met Christ. That would, to think that through even, some people actually write it out so they can actually share it, not, not like in some kind of automatic way, but you've thought through. Too many, we start, someone says, what, what's different about you? And if you haven't thought it through again, you start rambling. And you may talk about Jesus, but it's not coherent. And so I would challenge you to think through the before, the then, and the after, and be able to share it meaningfully with somebody within three minutes. And then, and then secondly, at, at a next level, be, because of where we live these days, you ask the average person how you become a Christian, and they'll tell you all the wrong things. They'll say, well, go to church once a month and do some good deeds, and that's not how you become a Christian. And so I think you need to be able to think through ahead of time, what if somebody actually, like that stewardess on the plane, could you tell me how to become a Christian? Like, have you thought through how to explain that in a simple, meaningful way? And most people can't unless they've thought it through ahead of time. Peter is saying, you first of all decide whose side you're on, and then you think through ahead of time what it is that you really believe so that you can explain it to somebody who has the hope that's within you. If you were to go to a third level, it especially not what I... Not only what I believe, but why I believe it. And to anticipate some of the classic questions that people ask you. Like, well, how, how can I trust the Bible? Or how do I know there's even a God? And uh, Dr. Wade Nunley and I, last year, uh, no, in 2021, in spring and summer, we have all of these on YouTube. We did a whole series on why we, can, why we believe the Bible's true. Well, what about... What about science in Genesis 1 and all of these questions that people ask you about? You can go back. You can do your homework. There's some great books out there. Peter said, if, if, if we're going to be people of courage facing increasing resistance to what we represent, then we, we need to decide whose side we're on. We need to set Jesus apart, I mean exclusively in our lives, and be hungry for him. And then we need to know how to answer people who start asking us about what's different about us. Why do you have hope in a culture that's largely depressed? Why do you have hope? And then, and then very practically, he will say, you know, and this is quite often, quite opposite to being afraid of people who disagree with us. He said, handle your critics with care. Handle your critics with care. Because after saying, you know, be ready to answer those, be ready to explain why you have the hope you do in Christ, he said, but do this with gentleness and respect. Do it with gentleness and respect. Don't let, and I've had people I've been trying to share Christ with, you know, kind of try to suck me into arguing with them. And they try to push my buttons. And, and I, I've had people curse me out. I've had people insult me, tell me I'm a fool. And they punch every button inside of you. I've had them make fun of me sometimes. I mean, that's not most people. Most people are a little more still in our culture, a little more respectful than that. But, but at times, people can try to punch your buttons. He's saying, keep your cool. I mean, they may hurt your feelings, but you don't hurt their feelings back. 
I mean, they may curse at you, but you don't curse them back. They may start to argue with you. You don't need to argue with them back. Answer their questions. But he said, do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that, I love this, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander, so that people who hate you won't know why they hate you. It's going to back them into a corner. And, and it's going to force us to deal with the whole fairness thing. You know, some of us live with this myth that, that life's fair. And I don't know, you know, ever since I was 10 years old, I figured out life wasn't fair. But I keep wanting to cling to that myth. You know, if I do everything, if I just be nice, if I be good, if I do good things, if I try to honor the Lord then good things are going to happen back to me. And I do believe in the blessings of the Lord. I do think you reap what you sow. But it's a myth to say life's going to be fair. And, uh, and you're going to do good things, and people will not like you back. You're going to put people under conviction. You're going to make people feel uncomfortable because you're talking about Jesus, and you're living a self-controlled life when they know they're addicted and out of control. And, and so it's going to punch their buttons. They're going to react to you. He's saying don't react back to them. But don't get caught in the fairness trap either. Uh, for it is better, next verse, for it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And that doesn't sound very fair. He said it's better to suffer because you did good. And then he uses Jesus as our example. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. I mean, he was willing to suffer to bring you to God. And and he's already told us in chapter 2, because Jesus suffered, you know, that, that sets the pace for us. We ought to also expect to suffer. Now, Jesus suffered because he bore our sins. He wasn't guilty of our sins. He bore our sins. But, and, and we don't suffer for that reason. But we suffer because we live in a culture that may hate Jesus. And Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you as well. It's not fair. You're doing good, and you're going to suffer. But take heart, Jesus did the same. To bring people to God, he was willing to suffer. And he's saying, you, to, to bring people to Christ, I mean, you may need to pay a price. You may need to suffer. And they may treat you in a way you don't deserve, but you got to get over the fairness thing and become like Christ. So he's saying, we're going to have courage to actually make it um, and, and come out not just surviving, but thriving. If, 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 and I don't mean that in a cliche-ish word, way. If, if we're going to be people who, who are steady. I, I mean, I, I, I just watch on social media sometimes, and even in the media. I mean, I mean, I mean, Christians just fighting back at culture, just hating people back. We cannot do this. This is not the way we we survive the resistance. This is not the way we live as exiles. We live loving people. We live doing good to people, even that have hurt us. I mean, I think Jesus talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount because he said, your heavenly father does good things to hate to people who hate him. I mean, I mean, there may be farmers that don't like Jesus and don't want anything to do with him, but he still causes his son and the moisture of his rain to come on their crops because you can never get away from God's goodness. And if God's good to people who don't like him, I mean, we at least can absorb the unfairness and live with courage as exiles. So, but you got to decide what team you're on. You got to think through how to explain the hope in you that will become so apparent to people who don't have that hope. And then, and, and you got to handle your critics with care. And I love where he goes us, to us next. And you're going to have to fasten your seatbelts for this one because it gets a little interesting. 
He's going to say, lastly, in this chapter, if you're going to live with courage, you need to personalize the triumph of Jesus for yourself. It's going to have to be more than an academic thought that Jesus rules and reigns and that he is triumphant. That somehow you're going to have to personalize Jesus' triumph for yourself. I mean, have you done that? So you never think, you know, you never have to have a martyr complex. You, 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 you never have to be whining and complaining because life's not fair and all of this stuff. When you have personalized Jesus' triumph for yourself, um, it, it's the game changer. And we do that because we can be filled with his resurrection spirit. Now here's how Paul, here's how Peter gets at it. He's trying to say, even though people may reject and harm you who don't follow Christ, you are never defeated because you participate in the triumph of Jesus. So he says, verse, continuing verse 18, he's just said Christ suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He just finished saying that. He finishes the verse by saying, he was put, Jesus was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit, speaking of the cross and the resurrection. And then he says, verse 19, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. And immediately you go, what? In fact, Luther went what? In fact, I, I love this quote so much I thought I'd put it on the screen for you. Martin Luther said of verses 19 and 20, a wonderful text is this and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament so that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. <laughs> I love that. Of course, in Peter's second letter at the last chapter, he will say, you know that Apostle Paul Sometimes it's hard to understand some of the things he writes in his letters. So let's be humble about this. But I'm, I'm just for a few moments, do this quickly. I'm going to wonk out on you with some Bible study where most scholars would go with this and, uh, and connect a couple of dots. Here are the clues. There's two clues in verses 19 and 20. Let's put it up again. After being made alive, Jesus went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. Now, who are, who are the imprisoned spirits? The word spirit in the plural, spirits, is hardly ever used to refer to human beings in the Bible. They're always used to refer to angels, angelic, like supernatural beings. Not God himself, but supernatural beings. So let's, and they're in prison, okay? Let's file that away. And then he gives us a timestamp in the next verse. That they were, these imprisoned spirits, these angelic beings were disobedient long ago during the days of Noah, during the time when, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built, which took decades to build, and there was something going on. Well, sure enough, we find out in Genesis 6, which just begins the Noah story, we read this interesting um, piece of information. Genesis 6, verse 1. Now, it came about, and this is not on the screen for you, but just listen. It came about when mankind began to multiply on the face of the earth. The human population was growing. And daughters were born to them that the sons of God, in this context, these would generally be 
believed to be angelic beings, the sons of God saw that the daughters of mankind, that would be human women, were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose, Genesis 1 tells us. And then Genesis 1, uh, Genesis 6, I mean, tells us. And then Genesis 6 says, and the world was just in anarchy and violence and people were feeding on each other and, and, and you have this almost uncontrollable even lust that, that these angelic beings which can't take on human form cohabited with women. Some scholars believe this is where the giants in the land came from. Jude chapter 6 in the New, Jude verse 6 in the New Testament says, and the angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper dwelling place, these he kept in eternal restraints under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Most scholars believe that's linked to Genesis chapter 6. There were angels that went AWOL. I told you I was going to wonk out on you. And I don't know if I've lost you. But angels went AWOL. They started cohabiting with, 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 with human beings. And, and, and it was at a time when the whole human population was growing. But was just spinning out of control. And God would send his judgment in the days of Noah, all of this happened. And what, what he's saying here is after being made alive, after being made alive, it seems, and after he rose again, it seems like Peter's saying, Jesus did a victory lap around that prison. And he said, you may have thought you could get whatever you wanted, but I won. And he does a victory lap. It's right there in verse 9, 19. After, after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits. It's like, I just, you know, I'm, I'm going to send that, but I just got to go by that prison and just remind them that all the victory, all the triumph, all the authority is in my name. And then in verse 20, having mentioned Noah, he said, in, in it, that is the ark that Noah built. Only, so we're back to Peter here, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. So what he's saying, you, you can have courage. He's saying to these Christians in the middle, midst of Asia Minor, I know you feel greatly outnumbered. I mean, I mean we all just need to get used to that we're, we're in the minority. I don't know a country in the world where, Christian, where true, devout Jesus followers are in the majority in any country in the face of the earth. We live in a world ruled by the powers of darkness has blinded the minds and hearts of people. And we're sent out missionaries. We're given to footprint to penetrate that darkness. And, and, he, and he, Peter is in a way saying, you're living like exiles, but you can have courage. You can have courage to survive the resistance because look what happened. In a whole world population full of lust and violence and anarchy and out of control where the judgment of the floods came against them, there were only eight people, but God saved them. And you may feel like there's hardly any of you in your little churches scattered through central Turkey, but I want to tell you, Jesus has triumphed. He's already declared it to some of those angels that messed our world up so much and messed their own lives up so much. And he said, even in it, 
eight in all were saved through water. And then he plays with the idea of water because when we're baptized as followers of Christ, we are baptized in what? Water. So he picks up on this image of water and he said this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. And he's talking about how that in the midst of the hostility, lust, greed, violence of the world, everything that had the judgment of God upon them, even though there were only a few, God still saved them. And your baptism for, uh, points to the fact, he picks up the image of water, because when you're in water, just like the ark went through the water, so when you're baptized, you, you in a sense go through the water, and you are saying, Jesus now, the cross of Jesus Christ is my ark. It's what saves me. I, not, I may not be the most popular person, and, and, and we may not outnumber everybody else in the population, but Jesus has saved us, and he has brought us through. And he's not saying that it's the physical act of baptism that saves you. He clarifies that. He says, this is not the removal of dirt from the body. That's the physical part of it. Just in a vacuum, just being baptized physically doesn't save you. But he said, it is the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he is alive. Because he has triumphed. Even when you go through the waters of baptism, you are declaring to the world, first of all, whose side you're on. I mean, you really, when you get baptized, you're really saying, I'm choosing Jesus' side and not the world's side. I'm dying to the old and living to the new. And, and he picks up on this water thing to say that it, it reminds us that, that we've chosen who we're a part of. And and we may feel outvoiced by the media. We may feel outmuscled by the culture. But we have been saved by the one who will triumph in the end. He's already done a victory lap around, around the, the jail cells of the imprisoned angels whose judgment will come. And he wants you to personalize what it means to participate in the triumph of Jesus Christ because it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, there they are, and authorities and powers in submission to him. Even the rebellion does not in the end nullify their submission to him. He has triumphed. What hope for these suffering believers feeling outnumbered and, and wondering what's going to happen as the heat grows in the Roman Empire and in the Jewish community against them. Jesus has triumphed because he's risen from the dead. He's done the victory lap to those fallen angels and he is with you. By the way, we're going to be baptizing people in our night of worship and prayer to. to uh, two weeks from tonight, and if you need to be baptized, you do need to be baptized. If you haven't been baptized, you need to be baptized. I mean, it was inconceivable in the first century that you'd, you'd decide to be on Jesus' side and not publicly affirm it in baptism as a response of a good conscience to God. And, 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 and it, it becomes like a dividing line. So I encourage you, if you need to be baptized in water, to, to contact the church, go on the website. We, we, we can help you get ready to do that. But the whole point 
is that even when we're being baptized, even when we're going through the waters, that in Noah's time represented the judgment of God, we're in the ark of Christ. We're safe. We have courage. So what they argue with us. So what they outnumber us. So what they outvoice us, it seems. Listen, God's still pouring out his spirit. And in him we're safe. And, and in him we can actually have the courage to share the hope with the world around us. In him we can be hungry for him, humble before him, gracious that, that Jesus has ascended into heaven, Peter says. He is at God's right hand with the angels and the authorities and the powers in submission to him. That's why I want to be on his side, not the other side. So that's why he opened this whole section back in verse 13 with the question, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? 